0: we just finished up some projects with the master naturalist which has to do with the poisonous plants and animals in uh, Virginia it just helps you to look at nature a little differently
1: in a way that would make us more nervous or in a way that would make <laughs> well, us appreciative
0: <laughs> no it's appreciative but it's uh, it's actually if you really start to think about it some of our drug development and such has come from these animals oh, too of course right so it's it's pretty interesting uh, if you start to look at what we have around us in nature
1: Uh, Hi, everyone. I am Jim Ryan, the president of the University of Virginia, and I'd like to welcome all of you to another episode of Inside UVA. This podcast is a chance for me to speak with some of the amazing people at the university and to learn more about what they do and who they are. My hope is that listeners will ultimately have a better understanding of how UVA works and a deeper appreciation of the remarkably talented and dedicated people who make UVA the institution it is. Today, I am lucky to be joined by Dr. Christopher Holsteg, uh, who is multi talented and has four titles to prove it. Uh, he is the executive director of student health and wellness. He is UVA's chief of the division of medical toxicology, a professor of emergency medicine and pediatrics, and the director of the Blue Ridge Poison Center. In addition to those four, demanding and important jobs, Dr. Holsteg is also a prolific scholar with over 200 publications under his name, including 10 books that he has either edited or authored. His work has been rightfully recognized. Dr. Holsteg was inducted into UVA Medical School's Academy of Distinguished Educators. He has received the Dean's Award for Clinical Excellence from the UVA School of Medicine, and he was twice named Attending Teacher of the Year. He is a native of Grand Rapids, an avid outdoorsman, and a dedicated father of six. And we are grateful to have a moment of his time today. Chris, thank you for being here.
0: No, thanks for inviting me.
1: So tell me about the path from Grand Rapids to Charlottesville.
0: Yeah, so uh, chemistry major, undergrad. And I think, as you know, in talking with students, it's all about mentorship, talking with faculty members on whether or not at that time when I was graduating from college to get an MD, get a PhD, get an MD, PhD, went the route of a straight uh, MD, but then did a residency in emergency medicine and then did a very new specialty known as medical toxicology. In fact, most people at that point were wondering, what in the world are you doing going into that? You're going to take more call and spend more time in the hospital. And really a fascinating time in the 1990s uh, to go into the field, especially with a plethora of drugs that were coming into society and what we had with our mental health crisis. Came to Virginia and was recruited by Marcus Martin, then chair of emergency medicine, to start the division of medical toxicology. There were very few programs in the country and still remain very few. Why is that? Uh, just aren't many of us in the specialty. They're usually aligned with poison centers. And yeah. like our Blue Ridge Poison Center, we cover 48 hospitals and We uh, really care for the critical access hospitals. We really manage those cases there, too. It's not just the University of Virginia, but also at these other small hospitals with very limited resources.
1: Uh, So outside of treating someone who has been poisoned, what else do you do in the field of toxicology?
0: Yeah, it's broad. So anything that is a potential toxin or poison. So it's uh, people who are suicidal and do drug overdoses, young toddlers who get into uh, things that they shouldn't and get poisoned. Snake bites, environmental, occupational. There's a whole host of things that come and that we train our fellows in.
1: So if you're living in Virginia, how worried should
0: you be about getting bitten by snakes? You know, not very much. Very rare. I've been hiking and out in the wilderness quite a bit. The first time ever, Jim, I actually had an encounter with a snake this past summer uh, on a a trail run. That actually bit my dog in the face, but my dog did very well. What kind of snake? Uh, Copperhead. Oh, geez. Yeah, no, Very, it's very rare. Uh, again, been out a lot, seen a lot of snakes, but it does occur.
1: And how do you do four jobs at once? I, I gather there are some connections, um, except for maybe student health and wellness. So I can see a connection between toxicology, the poison center, and even emergency medicine. Um, but where does the student health and wellness piece come in?
0: Yeah, so... 2013, if you remember, I was in the Faculty Senate for eight years and then chaired the Faculty Senate, got to know the schools well, uh, leadership very well, got to know Pat Lampkin very well during that time. The previous executive director had stepped down and she talked to me about stepping in in the interim to take a look at it, evaluate it, and see what we could do to potentially revamp student health and wellness. And so how long have you been in the position, well, close to 10 years, or maybe 10 years. It's 10 years, and it's not interim anymore, and I, actually it's been a wonderful ride. I never would have thought my career would have gone in this direction.
1: Yeah, well, you have been a phenomenal director of the Student Health and Wellness Center, and I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the changes that you've seen in the last 10 years. How is student health different, either in terms of the cases that you're seeing or the way that you're responding to them?
0: Uh, a lot of complexities, and I think what we've really tried to do is do multidisciplinary teams. And those teams are engaged. If you think about student health and wellness, it's the Office of Health Promotion, the Student Disability Access Center, the Counseling and Psychologic Services, and the Medical Services. They all interconnect, and uh, for our students who come with health. Concerns, it's working in a multi collaborative way with all those entities, including the health system and their expertise. If you think, for example, uh, concussions, Uh, we've published on this. We have a number of students who get concussions working with the Department of Neurology and the Education School where Kinesiology does work on this to do best practices and assure that those students who have concussions get good medical care. If they have um, depression that follows that, get follow-up with a counselor, uh, get accommodations that are necessary. And then our Office of Health Promotion works very closely then to see what is going on in our student population and how do we do prevention efforts.
1: Hmm. Yeah. And um, so we have a new student health and wellness center. How much of a contribution has that been to your work and to the university community more broadly?
0: Uh, It's been tremendous. Uh, It's given us the space that we need as we start looking at doing not just what we do in the care of students when they're coming with issues, but also as we start to look at wellness and well-being and how do we bring groups in. It gives us the space to do that. It's a destination place. We've learned from 1515. Uh, This was seen as a destination place, too, where students would come and uh, spend time together, but it also allows us to do prevention efforts and to focus on other things than just uh, studying all the time.
1: And do you find that students themselves are more interested in this topic than they might have been 10 years ago? That is to say, students are interested in learning strategies for resilience and healthy lifestyles and the like, or is it about the same?
0: No, I think it's much more so. Uh, I'd say this new generation is more in tuned with that as opposed to when I think when we were going through college. And it's, I think, a good change, and especially with the mental health crisis that's occurring right now as we look at that and how we're going to mitigate that.
1: Yeah. So you anticipated my next question, which is about student mental health, and you use the term crisis. So tell me a little bit about what you're seeing and what you've seen over the last 10 years or so and why you would describe it as a crisis.
0: So. When I first came in in 2013, uh, there was a debate that was ongoing about uh, what do we do with the students who have mental health needs? And do we refer them in the community? Do we hold them close? Uh, And what do we predict the future would bring? And we knew based on what we were seeing in the data and also what I was seeing in emergency medicine, where we could not get the care, mental health care that we need for our community, right. uh, much less for our students or have our students take that community time. And so what we've done is we've really looked to expand that. Now, if you look at 2013, when I first came in, CAPS had 8,158 visits in academic year 2014. CAPS is the Counseling and Psychologic Services. It has our counselors and our psychiatric uh, specialists. Mm-hmm. In this last academic year, CAPS alone had 18,074 visits. This is all for mental health. It is. So 18,000 visits to CAPS alone. Correct. And then add to that, we started Timely Care, which is a telehealth service. We learned during the pandemic that telehealth worked very well. Some students prefer telehealth, some prefer in person. And so we contracted with Timely Care. That was another 4,878 visits last year. And so we're looking at, you know, around uh, 24,000 visits or we tripled the amount of visits from when I first started 10 years ago to now in regards to mental health. And there's many reasons for that.
1: Yeah. So can you describe them? I mean, how much of it is more awareness, less hesitation, less stigma versus how much of it is just an increase in need? I'm sure it's a little bit of both.
0: It's both. And I... Certainly there's less stigma. And so I think students, which is great, which is what we want. We know the visits have increased because there's less referrals to the community. They just don't exist. Even our, our, our good friends and colleagues in the health system who do psychiatric services are uh, overwhelmed right now. So we're holding more close, which is good because we have specialists who know the university and what the stresses are. We are just finished a study that's going to get published in uh, the CDC's What's Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Review. But we did a study of uh, pediatrics during the pandemic and how many suicide attempts occurred during that time period. Did did it increase? Did it decrease? marked increase that occurred, in fact, in the nine to 13-year-old age groups. And I bring that up because this is a growing problem that we're still going to inherit in the future with the generation that we see coming too.
1: So what's the answer? How do we solve this problem?
0: Well, I think, again, it's uh, this is going to be multidisciplinary, too, and I think it's a team approach. It's the importance of what we're doing in student health and wellness, but as a faculty member, what the faculty are doing in regards to mentorship, what we're doing from a community standpoint, holistically, and uh, how we look at uh, the prevention efforts, right? We're looking at what other things can we do. It's not necessarily all about seeing a counselor or psychiatrist. Great teams that are are overseen by Nicole Ruzak, who does a wonderful job with those teams. But also, what can we do to mitigate this and prevention efforts, right? What strategies can we use? And somehow we've lost touch with this new generation. How do we do that? We're looking at exercise. We're looking at outdoor activities, the arts, uh, music, sports. There's a whole host of things that we can look at for the students to, how do we keep them from getting to the point where they're in crisis mode?
1: Right. So I've heard people say, and it makes sense to me that, This problem won't be solved simply by trying to hire more and more counselors, that you have to be thinking about the prevention side of it, um, perhaps as much or if not more so than the treatment side. Would you agree with that?
0: I do agree with it. I think from the prevention side, it's looking at what are the things that are causing it to get to that crisis mode. I think uh, more research to be done on that, especially with this new generation, But I agree, prevention is going to be a big component of this.
1: So you mentioned research, and I'm completely impressed that you find time amidst everything else you do to stay active in research. How do you balance the two?
0: Uh, They're interconnected. Uh, Much of the research I'm doing now pertains, especially in the student health realm, of the changes that we're doing administratively. So I, my team probably gets tired of me talking about that if we make a change, we change, for example, during the pandemic, we're going to change uh, our counseling from in-person to telehealth. We're going to research that and see what kind of impact that had. And so it's also that helps to inform the other universities. If we're going to be a top university in this arena, we want to be able to publish on that and and be able to disseminate that to other universities who don't have uh, the means that we have and what lessons do we have to learn. And we're engaging uh, the students, the trainees from the School of Medicine, uh, many of uh, the doctoral students from other colleges in this too. So we have some really active teams that I think benefits the students. And then there's some research that I'd just like to do. We just finished up uh, some projects uh, with the Master Naturalists uh, and some of the things in nature. Uh, Cleopatra Project, the Socrates Project, which has to do with uh, poisonous plants and animals in uh, Virginia. And that was just a, a riot to do with the Master Naturalists in Virginia.
1: No kidding. So what did you learn and what should we know about poisonous plants and animals in Virginia?
0: Hey, it's all listed on the Blue Ridge Poison Center website. We linked it up. We actually have a large booklet and we've distributed the book out to school nurses and other uh, providers, Uh, but you can get online and see that. And uh, many of the master naturalists are actually, many are retired faculty or in business who went into that expertise, but it was really a fun project. We had students and residents who worked with us on the project too, but it just helps you to look at nature a little differently.
1: in a way that would make us more nervous or in a way that would make <laughs> oh. us appreciative?
2: <laughs> no, it's
0: appreciative, but it's, uh, it's actually, if you really start to think about it, some of our drug development and such has come from these animals oh, too. of course, right. So it's, it's pretty interesting uh, if you start to look at what we have around us in nature.
1: And um, I know you like to spend a lot of time outdoors. Is that where your interest in toxicology and poison came from or the other way around?
0: Uh, no, I think it's probably the other way around. I would say for me, you know, the stresses in life. My favorite thing is to get outdoors. And yeah. I'm always f- thinking about what am I going to do? Where am I going to do my next trail run? What am I going to do with the hikes with my family? Uh, what about camping? So for me, that's uh, actually been where I decompress.
1: Uh, and do all your kids like to camp, or are they just good sports? Or do some of them go under protest? Is it have they learned to love it?
0: They, uh, so my six kids, they, uh, I think all of them enjoy it. There is a time period, my daughter especially would ask me the question when I say we're going to go for a hike, uh, how far, right. uh, before we would go. Uh, but no, they're all uh, much into it. My good wife's family is from Bozeman, Montana. Oh, so no we've, kidding. Had some, we've had some great times going out West, but she certainly introduced me to, uh, in her family, the outdoors a great deal too, in a whole different way.
1: And what have been some of your favorite camping trips?
0: Um, Lake Sherandal. That's nearby. Oh, 45 sure. minutes away. Uh, absolutely fantastic. Best sites. Great trails. Got the lakes. Have an island you can swim to. Right. Nice beach. Uh, probably one of the favorite places. My wife loves it because there's no cell phone service, so no one can bother us <laughs> when we're there. <laughs> so it is, uh, it's a fabulous place.
1: Uh, I agree. I've gone running and biking up there. It's a spectacular place. And it's basically in our backyard.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting My students. In a fourth-year rotation with medical toxicology, where I taught this morning, the students, I asked, you know, where have you gone outdoors? And uh, many of them have it their fourth year. Right. They haven't been to Shenandoah National Park. They haven't been uh, – they don't know what Lake Sarando is. The thing that most students you would think would do is humpback rock. Many of them haven't done that either. And so, you know, it's one of the initiatives, too, is to try and teach the students – about the outdoors we're often rated as one of the top universities for outdoor activities. And certainly some of our students engage, others don't. It's a lot of fun and I, I would really like to see more of our students get out a little bit more.
1: Yeah, well, I agree. And it's close by, O Hill is walking distance from main grounds and has great hiking trails.
0: Yeah, I agree. And uh, you know, Reagan Mountains very close. Right. There's a whole host of things. And we're, we're hoping to put up in the Student Health and Wellness Building some maps of where you can go that are easy walking distance and also uh, where students can post where they have done their hikes with pictures and such just to start educating others that, hey, there's some great areas to go. I know the outdoor clubs do a great job, but not everyone is engaged with those. Yeah. So last question, Chris. I know that
1: there are some parents who listen to this podcast, and they're probably wondering how they can best help their kids who are students at UVA, uh, and what would you say in terms of health and wellness that uh, how parents can can help their kids?
0: From a student perspective, there's so many great activities to do at the University of Virginia and, uh, and to introduce them a bit. It's not just the outdoors, but I think about old uh, Campbell Hall with the music that goes on, the artwork that's around the history, trying to get them engaged a bit more and to find some downtime. Uh, That downtime, I think, is refreshing. I think they're better at students. I know in my life I'm better and I'm more efficient as an administrator and as a clinician and a faculty member. It's important to have that downtime and find uh, groups that you can go out and do those uh, activities with.
1: Yeah. Well, um, that's very sound advice. Well, Dr. Holsteg, thank you for your time uh, and thank you even more for everything you do for UVA and our
0: community. No, thank you for your support and all that we've, uh, the administration and the board has done for the student health and wellness too.
2: If you or someone you know is struggling with a mental health challenge, there are a lot of resources available. UVA students can get in touch with Counseling and Psychological Services, or CAPS, online at studenthealth.virginia.edu/slash CAPS. UVA staff and faculty also have access to free mental health resources, including counseling, through the Faculty and Employee Assistance Program, better known as FEEP. We'll also link some resources available in the Charlottesville community and nationwide. Inside UVA is a production of WTJU 91.1 FM and the Office of the President at the University of Virginia. Inside UVA is produced by Kaylee Obermeyer, Arian Balou, Mary Garner-McGee, and Matt Weber. We also want to thank Maria Jones and McGregor McCants. Our music is turning to you from Blue Dot Sessions. Listen and subscribe to Inside UVA